Part 4. Eve of Destruction. Chapter 1. The mortar shells fell out of the grey, cloud-shrouded Bellatus skies, impacting into the muddy earth of the Arbites precinct house courtyard and exploding amongst a crew of labourers. Blessed Elena's holy teats, cursed Vanon Court, taking the name of one of the Adeptus Sororitas's greatest heroine saints in vain and ducking for cover behind the tracks of a rhino transport as the shower of mud, filth, shrapnel and body parts rained down around him. He ran from cover, knowing from the experience of the last few frantic, chaos-filled days that he had about twenty seconds' grace to reach other cover before the next round of mortar shells blasted into the precinct compound. Mahan! he called into his helmet voxcaster as he ran. What are your men doing up there on those wall turrets? Comparing their favourite passages from the Book of Judgment? Take your boot to your spotter's asses and get a targeting fix on the location of those mortar units. We're trying, Marshal Secundus, but they're hiding out in the hab zones to the east amongst those bombed out ruins. And they're moving their mortars every few rounds before our spotters can zero in on them. Came back the crackling reply on the helmet's vox unit, strain and tiredness sounding clear in the voice of the Arbites squad commander. Mahan was the youngest and least experienced of the marshal's lieutenants, and Court had originally opposed his promotion, arguing privately with Byzantine uh, that, promising as he was, the young agri-worlder arbitrator wasn't yet ready for squad command. Grudgingly, he had to admit that, as in so many things, the marshal's judgment had been right. In the last few weeks, Mahan's performance had been outstanding, often surpassing that of other, more senior squad commanders. He had taken command of the precinct house wall defences, repulsing several full-scale mob attacks on the fortress battlements and offering an umbrella of effective covering fire to the evacuation airlifts that arrived daily from the other Imperium outposts across the planet. Not, of course, that he was about to tell any of this to Mahan himself. As second in command, it was his duty to be the holy terror of the Marshal's junior commanders. And besides, he smiled to himself, recognising the familiar biases of a born hive-worlder. He'd be Emperor damned if he was going to be putting any compliments the way of some dumb hick of an agri-world cattle warrior. Then keep at him. Duty to the Emperor demands results, not excuses, growled Court into the Vox unit microphone. A warning shout from a nearby trooper alerted him to the whistling whine of the next round of approaching mortar shells. Court threw himself forward, joining a group of arbitrators crouching behind a sandbagged lee wall, just as the mortar shells struck, exploding against the solid reinforced rockcrete walls of the precinct fortress's inner blockhouse, or churning up the mud of the outer courtyard. Almost instantly, the macro-cannon turrets of the wall defences spoke in reply, hurling adamantium-tipped high-explosive shells back at the mortar battery's estimated position. A few seconds later, and there came the roaring blast of their impact somewhere amongst the ruins to the east, followed by a series of smaller explosions. 
Court and one of the other arbitrators, Dolan, who had been with the marshals since the pacification of the gene-stealer infestation of Tannen's world, exchanged glances, nodding in unspoken agreement. Secondary explosions, thought Court. We hit something, all right. Definitely at least some of those mortars. Maybe even an ammo dump into the bargain. Not bad, arbitrator Mahan. At least for a dumb agri-world cattle warrior. Fine work, Mahan, he spoke into the Vox unit. But keep looking. Find and destroy whatever's left of those mortars. There's a flight of grave hoppers on their way to us from the evacuation of Precinct Tertius, and I don't want to spend the rest of an afternoon clearing the landing zone of wreckage and body parts again. Understood, Marshal Secundus, came the gunnery commander's calm-voiced reply. With the mortars at least temporarily silenced, Court stood up, taking in the scene around the precinct house's outer courtyard. Baton-wielding proctor sergeants, bold in unison, directing convict work labourers to clear the courtyard of bodies and wreckage. The chain-gang work crews crept nervously out of whatever cover they had been able to find, terrified that... At any second, the skies would again drop another deadly hail of razor-edged shrapnel down upon them. One of the crews fought the blaze from a burning, open-topped rhino transport variant that had taken a direct hit from a stray incendiary round, and the smouldering wreckage of one of the local planetary defence force grav hoppers still lay where it had crashed, nose first, into the western quadrant of the courtyard, shot down by ground fire after almost completing its third strafing run of the arbitrator's compound. From somewhere above the low ceiling of rain clouds came the thin, threatening drone of high-altitude flyer engines. Court and Dolon exchanged glances, both of them vainly searching the grey, formless skies above Medina for clues to the flyer's location and identity. One of ours or one of theirs? asked Dolan. These days, does it make any difference? shrugged Court with dismissive contempt. Three hours ago, they had watched a flyer formation make a textbook and apparently devastating low-altitude airstrike on ground targets amongst the industrial suburbs in the north of the capital. Who the flyers were and what their targets had been was still a mystery to the defenders of the Arbites fortress. Court looked out past the walls of the fortress, seeing the dark shape of the rock of the regent's palace visible through the curtain of rainfall. The rain lighting up the enormous looming edifice as it sparked off the crackling defence shield that surrounded the seat of power of the planetary governor of Bellatis. Even from this distance, and even through the sound blanketing barrier of rain, he could hear the sounds of artillery fire. He raised his binoculars, wiping the lenses free of dripping rainwater. The rangefinder device zoomed in on the regent's palace, allowing Court to see the spattering of artillery fire impacting harmlessly against the barrier of the defence shield. As long as they kept firing at their beloved governor regent, then at least that means they won't be firing at us, Court uh, consoled himself, as he thought again of just how sickeningly quickly events on Bellatis had overtaken them all. It was scarcely two months since the unexpectedly premature end of the dry season and the beginning of this, 
The harsh and unforgiving monsoon months. Scarcely two months since the fearful discovery in that now thankfully obliterated underground chamber beneath the rook. But in that time, the whole of Pilatus had slid into anarchy and civil war, with a speed and viciousness that had been truly terrible to behold. Court watched another round of artillery fire strike against the palace defence shield. Several shells overshot their target. Emperor alone knows how the gunners could miss a target that massive, thought Court, and landed with disastrous effect amongst the thousands of refugees sheltering in futile hope amongst the surrounding ruins, under the falsely protective shadow of the palace rock. The whole place is going to the warp, and the warp's welcome to it, thought Court sourly, with a bitterness that he knew came from helplessness and his own angry reaction against what was now the inevitability of total defeat. The sooner the marshal gets us out of here, the better. Emperor knows we've done everything here we could for these poor wretches. Chapter 2 Muffled by the defence shield and the invisible null fields that screened off the otherwise open balconies from the outside world, the sounds of the civil war tearing Bellatus apart hardly penetrated the throne room of the regent's palace. Indeed, thought Byzantine, you wouldn't know that their world was only days away from extinction, the way these fools prattled on, still vying for petty privileges and personal advantage, as their world died around them. What you must understand, honoured marshal, is that His Majesty the Governor-Regent is not yet ready to take leave of his beloved homeworld, a world which, I hasten to add, the Emperor, in his divine wisdom, has entrusted to the stewardship of the Governor-Regent and his family for these last four hundred years. What you really mean, thought Byzantine, staring impassively at the tall and patrician figure of First Security Minister Judah Kale, is that you've persuaded the fat fool that it's his noble duty to remain here until the very end, because you and your kind still haven't finished plundering your beloved homeworld. For every piece of booty that you need to set yourself up for the rest of your parasitic and well-pampered lives on another world, preferably one far from any war zones and any troubling memories of Bellatus and the ghosts of its inhabitants. So far, the first security minister had almost filled the holds of one orbiting transport with property of the household of the Governor-Regent, property which included not only the contents of the now-emptied vaults of the Regent's treasury, but whatever other loot and valuables that Kale's security thugs could plunder from elsewhere amongst Bellatus's museums, shrines and treasure houses. The question of how many of their fellow doomed Bellatusites could have been carried to safety inside those cargo holds was apparently not one that occurred to either the security minister or his accomplices. I understand the Governor-Regent's desire to remain here with his people for as long as possible, said Byzantine, pointedly addressing the occupant of the Governor-Regent's throne rather than the figure of Judah Kale standing before the throne dais. Still, 
As a servant of the Emperor, it is also his duty to survive, since the Emperor in his mercy has commanded all his most valued servants here on Balatus be spared from the power of this new enemy weapon. As the most senior agent of the Emperor's law here on Balatis, it falls to me to ensure that the evacuation of the Emperor's faithful subjects proceeds without delay. I am here today to warn the Governor Regent that he cannot delay his departure any longer. The Imperial Guard forces of the 48th Valletta and the 123rd Tyre Minos regiments are already embarking aboard their transports. Uh, my Adeptus Arbites garrison is the only Imperium force remaining on Bellatis, and I have just received word that we too have been ordered to pull out. Byzantine paused, looking directly at the portly figure of the Governor Regent sitting on his throne. If the Governor Regent wishes to remain here, along with the rest of his subjects, to face the arrival of the despoiler's terror weapon, or to hold out to the last against the renegades currently laying waste, to his capital, then I commend his majesty's loyalty to his planet and people, but I tell him now that he shall do so alone, and without the protection of the Adeptus Arbites and the Imperial Navy. Almost on cue, a heavy salvo impacted against the palace defence shield, sending tremors running through the stonework of the ancient building and causing many of those present, courtiers and the anonymous faces of Bellatus's minor-ranking nobility, clustering to the presence of the governor-regent in the knowledge that he was their sole chance of escape, to cast nervous glances around them. Clearly few amongst this aristocratic elite shared their governor's apparent desire to see their world's death agonies out to the bitter end, and most, if not all of them, already wished they were aboard one of those orbiting transports. The dank and confined holds and compartments of an imperial transport were a poor substitute for the grand and spacious fineries of the Governor Regent's palace, but at least they were safely out of reach of the cultist artillery barrage. We thank the Marshal for his warning, but we remind him that we too hold Adeptus rank equal to his own, and that as his Divine Majesty's Governor of this world, the final order to leave it and abandon it to the enemy must come from this palace and not from the Arbites courthouse. The Governor Regent's strangely thin and reedy voice rang through the high-ceiling throne room and he glanced nervously around him as he spoke, seeking encouragement from those around him. Byzantine fought down an outburst of angry frustration. Even now, with his world just days away from destruction, this fat fool seemed to play politics, to put on a show for the assembled nobles that he would not be so easily dictated to by the Imperium. Before Byzantine could react, however, a dark blue habited figure stepped forward from the ranks of courtiers near the throne. In instinctive recognition of the simple yet distinctive robes of a member of the Adeptus Sororitas, the nobles and guards stepped aside to let her pass. The Governor-Regent is, of course, correct, but his adept rank is that of the Order of Adeptus Civitas. As a member of the Adeptus Arbites, the Marshal is of the Order of the Adeptus Militaris, in all situations pertaining to war against the enemies of the Imperium of Mankind, it is the Emperor's holy will and the command of the High Council of Terror that the word of the members of the Adeptus Militaris take precedence over that of all others. 
The silver-haired member of the Sisterhood of the Adeptus Sororitas bowed to the planetary governor and stepped back, casting a brief glance over at Byzantine. The Arbites Marshal nodded to her in silent thanks, glad of the presence here of at least one other agent of the Imperium. Sister Aponia belonged to the Order Famulus of the Adeptus Sororitas, assigned by the Ministorum to organise and maintain the Governor Regent's household, serving as an advisor to the Lord of Bellatis and, should he require it, a constant reminder of his subservience to the higher authority of the Imperium. Vitus Saro was not a bad man, Byzantine thought. He was in his own way a loyal enough servant of the Imperium, but he was a weak and foolish one, subject to petty vanities and too dependent on the opinions and manipulations of others, others such as First Minister Judah Kale, or the stolid, glowering figure of General Broad, commander of what was left of Bellatus's planetary defence forces, who glared in open hostility at Byzantine from across the floor of the throne room. Or, if the word of agents that Byzantine had amongst the palace staff was to be believed, the figure sitting on the lesser throne, besides that of the governor regents. Even as Byzantine watched, Saro leaned over, accepting both a goblet of wine and a few whispered words from his beloved sister. The alluring Lady Melissa. Installed in the place of the ruthlessly expunged clan of the rebel Lord Tarsus, the Saros had been the rulers of Bellatis for the past 400 years, each Saro planetary governor carefully adding the word regent to his title in acknowledgement to the emperor, the true lord of Bellatis, and in whose name they continued to rule with the approval and protection of the imperium. The house of Saro had served the emperor well in those 400 years, their loyalty recorded in the frescoes of the dubiously over-heroic battle deeds of previous governor regents which decorated the walls of the throne room. All around were epic battle scenes of the Saros ancestors, routing the Tarsus rebels or defending Bellatus from foul alien attackers, but the bloodline had clearly degenerated over the four centuries and statues and noble portraits of Saros's honoured ancestors gazed down on the governor's throne in what might have been stern disapproval of its present incumbent. Saro gulped nervously at the wine goblet preferred by his sister, and Byzantine added likely intemperance to the governor regent's many failings. Studying the Lady Melissa, her graceful patrician features, her obvious shrewd intelligence, necessarily masked by the dictates of court protocol, as she stroked her brother's face comfortingly. Byzantine again cursed the local hereditary customs, wondering again if Bellatus's slide into anarchy and civil war would have been so steeply rapid, had it been the Lady Melissa, and not her younger, weaker brother, who had ascended to the Governor Regent's throne after the death of their father eight years ago. Can the situation really be so bad? stammered Sarah, draining the last of the wine. Can we still call in more troops to maintain order and defend the palace? As governor regents, the people will look to me for leadership 
in this dark hour. It is my duty to remain here with them for as long as possible. They will want to know that though our world may soon be gone, its memory and spirit will live on for as long as the house of sorrow itself endures. No, not a bad man, thought Byzantine. Just weak and foolish and completely deluded. More troops, asked Byzantine, struggling to temper the scathing tone of his voice. From where, my lord? Your barracks are empty. Your entire troop reserves are either deployed in the field or have abandoned their posts. Many of them, whole regiments even, have gone over to the side of the enemy. Byzantine broke off here, sparing a withering glance to General Broad and his adjutants. It was now apparent that the ranks of the Planetary Defence Force had been successfully infiltrated months or even years ago by chaos cultists and sympathisers. As word of the impending disaster leaked out amongst the people of Bellatis, more and more chaos cults had emerged from hiding in almost every major population centre across the planet's surface, spreading fear and dissent amongst a populace already terrified by the first whispered, horrified rumours of their world's imminent destruction. Many of the first local defence force units dispatched to quell the cult-inspired uprisings had in fact sided with the enemies that they had been sent to destroy, their officers and NCOs now known to have been the corrupted followers of the powers of the warp. In other units, it had been the rank-and-file troops who rebelled, executing their officers and opening their armories to the ever-swelling ranks of the followers of chaos. The cult leaders preached that only those that swore themselves to the dark powers would be spared when the planet killer hung in orbit over their heads and the wrath of the despoiler descended upon their doomed world. The terrified inhabitants of Bellatis had flocked to the cause of chaos in their millions, desperate to grasp at any chance of survival, when faith in the Emperor apparently now offered none. The wave of defections and conversions to the side of chaos spread at a terrifying rate amongst the population, starting primarily amongst the Planetary Defence Force. At Byzantine's order, court had carried out an investigation amongst the higher echelon ranks of the Governor Regent's armies, identifying 16 officers on Broad's command staff, including the General's own second-in-command, whose incompetence and laxity had contributed to the army's failure to contain the situation. Justice for those 16 had been swift and summary, but the investigation had been necessarily hurried, and Byzantine was troubled by a worrying suspicion that there might still be chaos agents hiding amongst the Planetary Defence Force command staff. And perhaps higher than that, whispered a voice inside him, giving rise to a second even greater and more worrying suspicion. As he looked around the throne room and studied the faces of the assembled ranks of the great and good of Bellatus's aristocracy and government, here was not the time and place to act on those suspicions, he knew. Later, when they were underway in the warp, and he had them all isolated. Aboard an Adeptus Arbites strike cruiser would be the time to start asking questions about how Bellatis had descended into anarchy so easily and so quickly. How much was due to laxity and incompetence, which, as those 16 executed PDF command officers could testify were themselves considered crimes against the Emperor in the eyes of the stern guardians of his law, and how much was due to a crime far more heinous. Treason 
betrayal, heresy and connivance with the powers of the warp, crimes for which there could never be a great enough punishment. But first, Byzantine knew he had to get everyone here off this world. First must come the evacuation, and only after that, possible judgment and punishment. Stifling his natural anger and frustration, he adopted a more conciliatory tone, remembering an expression used by the hunters of his homeworld as they patiently lay in wait, sometimes for days on end, watching over the traps and snares they laid by the game trails and watering holes of the dense forests that covered the face of Skyre. Wait for the bait, then the blade. Byzantine looked at the figure occupying the throne chair. All here know you to be a true and faithful servant of the Emperor, honoured Governor Regent Saro. Be assured that you will be accorded all the honours and tribute due to you as this world's Emperor-appointed guardian. Tell me what you wish, honoured Governor Regent, and I will make it so. Chapter 3 I tell you, I swear it sounded like Kerner. The other two Planetary Defence Force troopers peered cautiously through the bunker's forward observation slit, scanning the shifting mists that covered the rain-soaked mud in front of their position and listening to the eerie silence that enveloped the scene. Bodies, dressed in the now-familiar black-cloaked garb of the Chaos cultists and splattered with mud and blood, lay scattered around everywhere outside. The free PDF troopers had held out for four days so far, they still had food and water, and ammunition supplies for the bunker's heavy bolter turrets were still plentiful, but after days of probing enemy attacks, their nerves were shredded, and resolve and determination were at a premium. The bunker was part of the ring of fortifications guarding the powerful defence laser batteries, and missile silos based here in the hills above Medina, protecting the capital from orbital attack. But their communications had been cut two days ago and they had no other means of communicating with their central command point, or even the nearest neighbouring bunker that was probably no more than 200 metres away. Occasionally they heard chattering bursts of heavy bolter fire sounding through the mists, proof that they were not the only defenders still left, but they had not heard even that in the last few hours. Maron, the eldest and most experienced of them, scanned the mists one more time before drawing back into cover again, looking at the young lookout in clear irritation. I don't hear anything. Whatever you heard, if you even heard anything, mind, it wasn't Kerner. Forget about Kerner. Kerner's dead or deserted. Either way, he's not coming back to help us. Kerner wouldn't abandon us, protested his younger comrade. He promised us he would come back with reinforcements. Aye. And perhaps he even meant it at the time, said Maron. But maybe it was a different story if he actually did make it past those black cloak bastards. Kern has got a wife and two kids down in Medina, and he probably figured he'd rather face the end with them than with me or either of you two fools. Hell, if I don't even blame him. I've got family too, back home, in the outskirts of Rabas. That's another continent away from here. But if I thought that I even had half a chance of getting back there in time, you think I'd still be sitting here with you? Maron shook his head in disgust, and then checked himself. The younger trooper had fought well over the last few days, but he was barely older than Maron's own lad back home. He was frightened and tired. All three of them in this bunker were going to die. 
if not now, at the hands of the chaos cultists hiding somewhere out there in the mists, then in a few days' time, when the enemy fleet and its terrible, world-destroying weapon arrived in the Balata system. Perhaps, thought Maron, he should be easier on the lad. Perhaps. Out there! There's someone in the mists! It's Kerner! Emperor Zorf, it's really him! Alerted by the other young recruit's excited shout, Maron snatched up his lasgun, using its infrared sighting scope to pierce the veil of mist. He saw a figure emerging out of the distant tree line, staggering towards the bunker. It was wearing the blood-stained blue surge uniform of the Bellatus Planetary Defence Force, and seemed to be limping from a leg wound. Maron retrained the scope settings, zooming in on the blood-smeared features of the figure's face. It was Corporal Kerner, all right. Through the scope, Maron could see Kerner's mouth moving, and from inside the bunker he could hear his comrades' cries for help, pleading with them not to fire upon him. But still, something about the scene made the veteran trooper hesitate. Something, a sense of disquieting doubt, called out in warning to him. Then suddenly there was the sound of crackling bursts of gunfire, bullets and las bursts, throwing up small gouts of muddy earth in the area around Kerner. Maron saw dark figures moving amongst the cover of the tree line, and the soldier in him reacted instantly and instinctively. Cover him fire! Give him cover him fire! One of the other troopers manned the bolters, sending a stream of heavy caliber death into the cultist's hiding place expertly panning the twin-mounted weapons back and forth along the tree line for maximum effect. Maron watched, nodding in approval. At the start of the dry season, this one had been a raw recruit, but the last two months of fighting, as Bellatus tore itself apart around them, had turned the young trooper into something close to a seasoned veteran. Maron took aim with his lasgun, sending precise and carefully judged shots into any black-robed shape foolish enough to show itself to his gun sights. An urgent hammering sounded from the thick, armoured door at the end of the cramped bunker space. Kerner, pleading to be let in. One of the youngsters moved to disarm the booby-trap door systems and let him in. Maron readied his lasgun, expecting the cultists to make a suicidal charge across the open ground and toward the bunker door, as it opened, but instead he saw them falling back into the sheltering shadows of the surrounding forest. Again, that mental voice of disquieting doubt called out to him in warning. Too late, he turned, seeing the youngster already opening the door, seeing Kerner in the doorway, seeing the bloody marks of the eight-pointed chaos sigil that had been carved into the flesh of his face, seeing the Laz pistol in his hand, seeing as he raised and fired it at point-blank range into the chest of the youngster who had opened the door for him, seeing the rows of explosive charges strapped to Kerner's chest, seeing the trigger device gripped in Kerner's other hand. Maron reached for his lasgun, knowing that he would never be able to aim and fire in time, praying that when the end came in a few days' time, for his wife and children, it would be just as sudden and painless as this. Corson, the faceless, champion 
of chaos undivided, watched in grim satisfaction as the aftermath of the explosion swept across the clearing, mud and debris raining down in its wake. Around him, the line of black-cloaked cultists crept out of cover. Khoisan barely spared them a glance. They were mere rabble, barely fit to serve amongst the lowest dregs of the despoilers' armies. But here on this world they were adequate for the purpose, just as the captured prisoner had, in the end, adequately carried out his purpose. The fool had willingly carried out his task, believing, in doing so, that his death would ensure that his family would be spared in the coming catastrophe. Khoisan almost laughed at the thinking behind such folly, knowing that all around him were other fools who believed the same, who believed that in serving the cause of chaos they would be saved when the planet killer arrived. It was the will of the spoiler that all on this world would be annihilated, and that was the purpose of the mission Khoisan was now on. He raised a hand, signalling to a cultist nearby armed with a grenade launcher. Seconds later, a bright starburst shell exploded high overhead, summoning the main body of cultist troops gathered on the lower slopes of the hillside. The last bunker in this section of the defence chain was gone. The way ahead to the laser batteries and silos was clear. Chapter 4 For the third time in as many hours, the wave of black-cloaked cultists charged across the square. And for the third time in as many hours, they were met with a withering hail of fire from the defenders behind the makeshift barricades. From his position atop the shattered stump of what had once been a tall statue of the blessed Sebastian Thor, Confessor Johann Devane directed his flocks volleys of gunfire, heedless of enemy snipers. Holy terrors, the commanders of the Imperial Guard disparagingly called the Frataris Militia. Believing the religious-inspired armed laity of the Imperial faith to be as much a danger to themselves and many other Imperial forces, they were serving alongside as they were to the enemy. Still, right now, Devane would be glad to match and compare his flock's resolve and fighting spirit with that of any regiment in the entire Imperial Guard. Keep at them, he exhorted. Let them draw close, and fire only when you're sure of your target. If you run out of ammunition, take up the nearest weapon at hand, and join your brethren amongst the second line of defence. A stub-gun round wind off the arm of the overturned statue behind Devane. The Imperial Confessor looked around, seeing a planetary defence force trooper in a uniform dyed black with smeared mud and engine oil, kneeling on a pile of shattered masonry and readjusting his aim for the follow-up shot. Devane raised his own auto-gun and fired. The deserter screamed and fell off the pile, clutching at his face. With no shortage of targets to choose from, Devane kept firing, sending short, precise bursts of bullets into the body of heretic after heretic. Devane saw a hail of Molotov cocktails sail up from the cultist attack wave, the missiles breaking in fiery explosions amongst the ranks of the defenders. Fearful screams and the smell of burning flesh rose up from behind the barricades, 
Devane sighted on one of the firebomb-throwing cultists, a burst of devastatingly accurate autogun fire exploding the missile just a moment after it left the thrower's hand. A blanket of burning Prometheum drenched the cultist and those around him, setting alight their robes and transforming them in seconds into living, screaming fire mannequins. In their terror and pain, they ran blindly amongst their own ranks, setting others alight and spreading the fear and confusion even further into the cultist's attack. See! The fires of the Emperor's wrath consume them! called Devane knowing all too well how positively the zealots of the Frateras militia responded to such fire and brimstone rhetoric. Shine! And the burning radiance of the Emperor's glory upon them! Cast them back into the darkness of the warp! Slights of figure and clean-shaven, Devane knew he little resembled the fiery, wild-eyed and bearded figures of the Confessor of the Imperial Faith familiar from so many stirring ecclesiarchy myths and histories. Yet in the eyes of his flock he stood taller and more awesome than the fifty-metre-tall statue that still guarded the main archway entrance to the Cathedral Square. A month ago, when he was still a lowly and anonymous preacher in one of the rural parishes far to the south of the capital, he had gathered his flock together and told them that if they were doomed to die, then it would be better to wait for the end at the sanctuary of the great Ecclesiarchy Cathedral in Medina, where they could spend their final days in prayer and contemplation before finally commending their souls to the Emperor. This pilgrimage to the capital had been long and danger-fraught. Many had fallen along the way, killed in the violent chaos that had enveloped all of Balatis. But many more had joined them, drawn by this unknown country preacher's quiet intensity and the promise of a safe and holy refuge in which to wait out their final days. And when Devane finally arrived in Medina five days ago, it was at the head of something by then resembling a small army of pilgrim followers. If they had expected to find the planetary capital, the very seat of imperial authority here on Bellatus, exempt from the disorder that ruled elsewhere, they were soon disappointed. Armed gangs of looters and bandits roamed the city, preying on anyone who crossed their path. Much of the city was in flames, with loyalist and renegade PDF forces conducting artillery duels over the ruins. The Governor Regent's palace was still intact, protected by an impenetrable defence shield and guarded by the elite troops of the palace guard. But the rule of the Emperor's law and Bellatus now extended no further than the main Arbites Citadel courthouse and the Administratum building and dormitories clustered close within its protective shadow. When he and his followers reached the cathedral, they found it under the fragile protection of a makeshift defence force, mainly composed of aged, non-combatant ministerum priests, keen but disorganised Frataris militia, laity, and nervous young acolyte adepts who barely knew which way up to hold a lasgun. There had also been a small force of Adeptus Arbites, but they had ordered to pull out and rejoin the main courthouse garrison on the far side of the city prior to final evacuation. There were reports that heretic cultists were descending on the capital from all directions, 
and the necessary decision had been made to concentrate all remaining imperial forces on the defence of the Arbites courthouse in the Governor Regent's palace. The Ecclesiarch Cathedral, isolated from the other two remaining pillars of imperial authority on the far side of the river that divided Medina, would have to fend for itself in these final few days of the planet's life. As would the tens of thousands of pilgrim refugees who had flocked to the cathedral in search of sanctuary. Devane, who had answered the calling of the ministerum priesthood after almost twenty years of service as an officer in the Divine Emperor's armies, the 415th Mordian Iron Guard, no less, the famous Old Indefatigables, who had forged themselves a legendary reputation during the months of the bloody climax of the Karnak Crusade, now found himself, 13 years after being released from service in the Imperial Guard, once again called upon to take up arms against the enemies of the Emperor. Immediately, he had begun putting his military experience to use. The huge cathedral square, with so many entrances and approaches leading into it, was he quickly realised, indefensible. Given the quality and quantity of troops and weapons that he had, he had ordered a barricade circle to be built around the towering cathedral edifice, giving the defenders sheltering behind it a clear field of fire across the open expanse of the surrounding square, statues and monolithic plinths honouring some of the imperial faith's greatest heroes and martyrs, were ruthlessly pulled down and dragged into position. Vehicles were overturned and employed as barricade building blocks, the contents of their fuel tanks carefully drained and stored away as part of an arsenal of hundreds of guerrilla warfare firebombs. Even the pews, pulpits and choir transepts inside the cathedral's great hall had been ripped out and used to build the barricade. The arbitrators had left what weapons and ammunition they could, and the cathedral had its own hidden weapons stores, but neither were enough to completely arm his ragtag army of defenders or fend off their attackers. And so Devane had had to improvise. Every third defender was armed with some kind of gun, typically a las gun or auto gun, although the arbitrators had blessedly left them with a few precious auto cannons and heavy bolters to supplement the Frataris militia cache of flamers and heavy stubbers. When one of the gun-armed defenders fell in battle, one of his unarmed brethren took up his weapon and assumed the dead man's place in the barricades. So far, this strategy was working, and Devane knew that there were men on the barricades whose weapons had been in the hands of four or five previous owners in just the last two days. Meanwhile, those defenders without guns were armed with any kind of close combat weapon that came to hand, and it was their duty to form the secondary line of defence. Engaging in bloody bouts of hand-to-hand combat with any cultist attackers who made it through the hail of fire and attempted to break through the barricades. And behind them was a third and final line of defenders, women and children, the wounded and the elderly, armed with firebombs or even cobblestones torn up from the surface of the paved square, hurled a rain of missiles over the barricades and into the heads of their attackers. These people, his newfound flock, would fight to the death, Devane realised. When they were overwhelmed on the barricades, as they surely soon must be, 
they would fall back and try to hold the gateway entrances to the cathedral building itself. And when the heretics broke through those, then they would defend the cathedral corridor by corridor, chapel by chapel, crypt by crypt, laying down their lives in defence of the house of the Emperor Divine and in defiance of his heretic enemies. They understood their lives were forfeit, Devane knew. Now they wish only for their deaths to have meaning, for by sacrificing their lives in the service of the Emperor, they would be assured an honoured place in the afterlife, seated by the Emperor's right hand. Devane saw the remains of the heretic attack wave break against the barricades, the second rank of defenders sheltering behind the barricades, rushing forward to meet them. The battle descended into a series of vicious hand-to-hand struggles along the tops of the barricades. Devane saw a cultist with a brace of frag and crack grenades strapped to his body climb the barricade and throw himself down upon the defenders on the other side, detonating in their midst in an explosion that killed or injured more than a dozen and blew a clear breach in that section of the barricade ring. A human bomb, he grimly realised. They had been seeing more and more of these devastating living weapons in the last few days as the planet's end approached and the suicidal mania grew in the minds of all those still trapped upon it. There were those amongst his own laity who would gladly accept such a death in the name of the Emperor, Devane knew. But as a, a former Imperial Guard officer, his every instinct was repelled at the thought. In the Emperor's armies, only the worst kind of penal regiment scum, criminals, deserters, cowards and heretics were used in this way. And Devane could not countenance employing such a tactic using the Emperor's faithful and devout servants. Elsewhere he saw a young boy wearing the robes of a novice acolyte of the Ministorum. The lad was barely old enough to have started shaving, Devane judged. Expertly bayoneting a tattooed-faced cultist spearing the heretic madman through the heart with one well-judged thrust. The cultist's lifeless body tumbled away down the barricade slope to join the growing mound of black-garbed corpses heaped there. Another cultist, roaring in defiance, his giant body streaming with blood from half a dozen near-mortal wounds, scaled the barricade, swinging a razor-edged, machine-tooled hand-axe, and decapitating the Frataris militia defender that rose up to meet him. Then, at the top of the barricade, a hurled cobblestone smashed into his head. His skull crushed, he fell amongst the waiting defenders, on the other side of the barricade. Bellowing in pain, he was immediately set upon by a pack of women and children who savagely beat him to death with clubs and bloodied rocks. Devane drew his old Imperial Guard chainsword and threw himself into the fray, hacking and slashing into the press of black-cloaked bodies and shouting whatever stirring exhortations that he could remember from the more bloodthirsty passages of the approved litanies of devotion. Father Confessor, beware! shouted one of the Frataris in warning, suddenly throwing himself in front of Devane and taking a heretic sword thrust intended for the imperial preacher. Devane swung his chainsword in fury, severing the heretic sword arm with his first blow and laying open their chest with his return sweep. The heretic, a woman, Devane saw with a shock, fell away with a gurgling death scream. Devane knelt down over the dying Frataris brother, 
recognising the man as one of the group of sharecropper farmers who had joined the pilgrimage at the end of the first week of their journey. Devane realised with regret that he had never learned the man's name. Father, my wife and children, my sister's family too, choked the dying man, reaching with a wavering hand to grasp the burnished silver medallion image of the Emperor Ascendant that Devane wore around his neck. They are sheltering inside the cathedral, father. And the Emperor will watch over them, Devane assured him, recognising the helpless fear in the dying man's eyes, pressing his hands to the medallion image. As will I, he added, seeing the man's features relax in contentment, just seconds before the moment of death. Walk in the light of the Emperor Divine, brother, he intoned quietly, touching the medallion image to the dead man's lips and forehead in the traditional blessing of the fallen. The Imperial Preacher took up his chainsword again, keen to take out his rising rage on the Emperor's enemies, but all around him he saw that this latest phase of the siege of the Ecclesiarchy Cathedral was coming to an end. What was left of the cultist attack wave was fleeing back in retreat across the cathedral square. Gunfire from the barricade defenders chased them on their way. Devane understood the gunner's sense of bloody-handed triumph and desire to punish their enemies further. But there were other more tactically vital considerations to be made. Cease fire! he bellowed. Conserve ammunition! Don't waste your shots! Save them for the next time they come at us. Other voices took up the cry all along the barricade lines, and the ragged volley of gunfire quickly died away. Silence suddenly and shockingly descended on the open expanse of the corpse-strewn square. Quickly, while the surrounding cultists were still reeling from the failure of the latest attack, packs of small, nimble figures scurried up over the tops of the barricades and began foraging amongst the carpet of dead and dying heretics. They began collecting weapons and ammunition from amongst the enemy dead, dispatching any wounded and still-living heretics they came across with quick thrusts of the sharp-bladed knives they carried. They moved fast, trying to keep one step ahead of the enemy snipers who were now beginning to open fire at them from the far side of the square. They were women, children, and walking wounded, and any other non-combatants who had volunteered for this perilous but very necessary task. Better to risk their lives to a sniper's bullet, ran the cold-blooded tactical doctrine, than that of an able-bodied fighting man. Devane knew the tactic was a good one, but still it sickened him to have to put it into practice. Children, he thought to himself, wondering how much further the planet-wide madness would go as Bellatus's final extinction loomed ever closer. Now we are using children to wage our wars. Suddenly a chattering stream of heavy stubber fire ripped across the square, shattering cobblestones, making corpses jump and dance under the impact of high-speed bullets into flesh and cutting across the path of one of the small running figures. The child screamed and fell, and kept screaming as it writhed in agony amongst the corpses, in clear view of the enemy snipers. A second burst from the same weapon would have mercilessly finished the victim off, but Devane knew that mercy was not something the enemy was capable of. 
It was a trap, he knew. The injured child was bait designed to lure others out into the sniper's sights. And even as Devane watched, two Frataris brethren scrambled over the barricades and ran to the child's aid. Devane cursed aloud their foolishness and at the same time offered a silent prayer for their protection. Neither man was truly a fool, Devane knew. They ran in crazy zigzag patterns, defying the snipers an easy shot at a linear moving target, and made sure to keep their distance from each other, forcing the snipers to choose between them. It was a brave and bold action, well thought out and properly executed. It almost worked. The first man went down five metres short of the child's position. A las bolt caught him high in the left shoulder and spun him. He staggered, fell to the ground and attempted to rise again. But by that time the other snipers too had found him. Seen from the barricades, he looked like a puppet being jerked on its strings as the volleys of bullets and las blasts plucked and pulled at his flesh. The second man took advantage of the gruesome display his comrade was performing for the enemy's entertainment. He ran to the child, scooping him up into his arms and turned to run back towards the barricades, taking only a few steps before the snipers tired of their sports with their other victim and turned on him instead. Bullets and las blasts ricocheted off the cobbles around him. He tried zigzagging again to avoid the sniper's aim, but this time he was moving more slowly, weighed down, by the body of the child, and now the snipers had only one target to concentrate on. The first shot took him in the small of the back. He staggered, but did not fall. Still carrying the now still form of the child, he abandoned the zigzagging run and instead made straight for the safety of the barricades. Sniper fire snapping at his heels. From the barricades, men shouted praise and encouragement. Every defender there willing their brother on. Seeing the man's plight, the ecclesiarch Proctor in Devane won out over the military tactician. Open fire, he ordered, telling himself that the expenditure of their precious ammunition reserves would be worth it in terms of the morale boost if by some emperor-ordained miracle the man actually made it back with the child to the cover of the barricades. Cover him! Lay down suppressing fire on those sniper positions! A wave of gunfire crashed across the square, peppering the ancient stonework facades of the public buildings and rich mercantile townhouses that lined the fringes of the square where the main body of the heretic forces were sheltering. Devane doubted that this noisy and profligate expenditure of their limited ammunition supply would result in many enemy casualties. The range was too great for accurate shooting, and the accuracy of the Frataris gunners was variable at best. But it would hopefully force some of the snipers to keep their heads down, giving the man all that more chance to make it to safety. Devane could not hear the snipers fire over the sound of the defenders' volleys, but he knew that at least some of them were still shooting. He saw the man stumble twice more on his journey back to the barricade, assuming with a sinking heart that each stumble came from another bullet hit. Then, at last, he somehow made it to the foot of the barricades, half a dozen defenders scrambling down to help him, a sea of hands reaching out to lift him and the child up over the top of the barricade. Frataris defenders crowded around the man, then parted to let Devane through. The man was dying, the preacher saw instantly. The quilted flat jacket that he wore 
and which had partially protected him from the sniper's fury, was soaked dark with blood. Devane knelt over him, bestowing the blessing of the fallen upon him as gentle hands took hold of the body of the child, cradled in the dying man's arms. The boy moaned in pain as he was lifted away. He lives, breathed one of the Frataris in wonder, sending a thrilled ripple of surprise out into the ranks of the brethren crowded close around. Take him to the infirmary, ordered Devane. See to it that the blessed sisters tend to him as best they can. It's a sign, called one of the Frataris elders, his red and gold fringed robes and mortified skin markings, identifying him as a follower of the zealot-minded redemptionist subcult of the Imperial faith. First, the Emperor sends the Father Confessor to lead us in the defence of this holy place, and now he sends us this sign that he is watching over us still. Others took up the cry, and soon the barricades rang with the joyous shouts and devotional chants of the faithful. Devane moved amongst his flock, outwardly sharing in their excitement. He offered words of encouragement and pious fortitude. He politely but firmly refused the small but precious gifts of food and drink that many tried to press upon him, knowing that food supplies were already at a premium, and that many of these people had not eaten properly in days. He bestowed blessings on men and weapons, and sat praying with an injured Frataris brother, who had remained on duty on the barricades for the last two days, refusing to give up firing control of the heavy stubber he had manned since the beginning of the siege. The man was obviously dying. Devane could smell the tell-tale, sickly odour of gangrene, rotted flesh from beneath the man's bandaged wounds. But he was amongst the best gunners they had, and Devane quickly acceded to the man's clear but unspoken wish to die fighting the Emperor's enemies, rather than amongst the sick and injured that already crowded the cathedral's infirmary. Devane did all this devoutly and faithfully, as an imperial preacher and servant of the god-emperor. But all the while, from inside him, the voice of the military commander he had once been told him, it was ultimately all in vain. A sign or miracle, he thought to himself, momentarily allowing that doubting, questioning voice free reign. Two brave and able-bodied fighting men dead, and for what? The life of an injured child, who, if he does not die from his wounds in the next few hours, will die along with the rest of us, in a few days' time anyway. Tell me, preacher, where is the emperor-ordained miracle in any of this? Where is the sign that these good and faithful people have not been betrayed and abandoned by the mighty Imperium, which they were always told was there to protect them? Devane shook his head in a physical effort to dispel such blasphemous doubts from his mind. If he truly believed that, he told himself in reply, then why did he not climb over the barricades now and run across the square to join those other heretics mass there? This was the poison reasoning that had caused so many of the world's population to turn away from the Emperor's divine light and instead go toward the darkness of the malignant and false powers of the warp, he realised. Father Confessor, in gratitude, the preacher drew his mind away from such thoughts and turned towards the speaker now addressing him. It was a young ecclesiarch scribe acolyte, clearly nervous and overawed in the presence of the great and mighty warrior priest confessor. 
Devane was still unable to come to terms with this new image of himself as some towering and inspirational presence in the minds of the cathedral defenders. Father Confessor, they called him. Yet Devane was not even certain that he was properly entitled to his newly ordained rank. It had been bestowed upon him by the impressive and imposing figure of the Arbites commander. Byzantine, he had been called, when he had arrived to supervise the arbitrator's final withdrawal from the Ecclesiarchy Cathedral. It had been Byzantine who had authorised for the Frataris to be given whatever weapons and supplies the Arbites had to spare, and it had been Byzantine who had shrewdly realised the imperial preacher's worth. A guard officer turned holy man, the arbitrator had said, looking speculatively at Devane. We could use a man of your abilities defending the Imperium compound across the river. You'll be doing your duty to the Emperor just as you are here, but there'll be a place on an evacuation shuttle in it for you as well. My place is here with my flock, Devane had answered. I have led them this far. I cannot abandon them now. If they must remain here, then I must remain with them. Byzantine had nodded in silent understanding, approving of the preacher's devotion, but regretting the loss of such a clearly capable and courageous servant of the emperor, and had turned to go. Suddenly he had hesitated, turning back towards Devane. A mere preacher is an unworthy leader for the Frataris militia. The articles of the church militant tell us that only a ministerum adept of the rank of confessor or higher may command the armies of the faithful. Your cardinal is already aboard one of the orbiting transports, which leaves me as the ranking imperial servant left on this world. The big arbitrator had paused, reaching forward and solemnly laying a heavy armour gauntleted hand on the shoulder of the diminutive preacher. Walk with the emperor, father, confessor, divine. My thoughts and prayers go with you. Devane had stood, stunned, as the Arbites commander saluted him and strode off towards the waiting grav-lifter shuttle. At the bottom of the landing ramp, he had again turned back to Devane, his final words to him still somehow audible over the rising scream of the shuttle's engines as it prepared to take off. You have your duty and I have mine, and those duties take us to our separate destinies, but I swear to you that one day my duty will be to avenge the loss of this world and the sacrifice of these children of the Emperor. Father Confessor, asked the scribe again, his voice cowed in tones of nervous reverence and again calling Devane's attention back to the situation at hand. Tell the brother Archdeacon that the enemy assault is over, at least for the present. It is safe for him and the other brethren to continue with the evacuation. The young acolyte bowed and gratefully retreated, eager to be away from the dangerous barricade area and keen to rejoin the rest of his brethren in the safety of the cathedral's inner courtyard, where they had gathered to await the arrival of the final series of evacuation shuttles scheduled to depart from the cathedral. Over a hundred ministerum adepts yet remained within the cathedral, overseeing the final inventory and Packaging of the precious ecclesiarchy relics and records housed in the miles of crypts beneath the ancient building. 
There were countless documents and scroll records stored down there, maintained and guarded by an army of scribe adepts. Taken together, they formed a comprehensive record of the presence and power of the Imperial faith here on Pilatus, and thus were also a history of the thousands of years of Imperium rule of the world, the oldest and most precious of them, dating back more than ten millennia, to the time when the world was first reclaimed in the name of the Emperor. The planet and its people would soon vanish, but through the Ministorum's painstakingly maintained histories, some vestigial memory of it would continue to live on as part of the everlasting Imperium of Mankind, if only in the form of meticulously catalogued scrolls and data slate recordings stored deep in the bowels of a Ministorum librarium on some far distant Ecclesiarchy shrine world. Accompanying the records and relics on the flight from the doomed world would be hundreds of Ecclesiarchy adepts, ranging from the Cardinal Astral himself to the lowliest scribe adept and relinquidious keepers. Many of the cathedral adepts had opted to remain here to defend the Emperor's house against the heretic horde, but many more had not. If Johann Devane, the man, was tempted to feel any bitterness towards those who sought to escape the destruction of this world and its people, then preacher, now confessor, Devane, the adept, did not. Remembering again the final words of the Arbites commander. They have their duty, and I have mine. In the end, it is our destiny to serve the Emperor in the ways he has commanded for each of us. Chapter 5 Master, you must come. The last of the shuttles is about to leave. The Archdeacon himself has commanded you to board it. The frightened voice of the novice initiate roused Sobek from the light trance that he had placed himself in. Although his astropath senses had warned him of the boy's scurrying approach from the now eerily empty and abandoned corridors and chambers of this section of the Ecclesiarchy Cathedral, from outside the cathedral walls the astropath's finely attuned ears picked out the now familiar sounds of combat, while his psychic senses dimly told him of the even greater chaos in the city beyond. Dimly, only because he had deliberately closed off those levels of his inner vision with powerful mental blocks, fearing that the psychic shockwaves generated by the confusion and terror of the doomed planet's population would overwhelm his own mind. I have already spoken with the Archdeacon Leto. I have told him that it is my wish to remain here on Bellatis. Sobek turned his blind face towards the frightened boy, favouring him with a rare smile. I have been on this world for sixty-eight years. Before that, I saw the faces of many other of the Emperor's worlds with these blind eyes. But after so long, I can scarcely recall which of them was the face of my own birth world. This world is really all I have ever known. I have served the Emperor well, but I am old and tired, and I know that soon the Emperor will call me to him. Leave me be, Leto. I do not wish to see... The face of any new worlds. The boy lingered in the doorway, afraid to return without him. Clearly, thought Sobek, the Archdeacon's proclamation that any adept brothers who wished to remain to defend the Emperor's sacred house was not meant to extend to brethren as unique and valuable as an astropath of Veneratus rank. From far below in the cathedral square came the sounds of renewed gunfire, and from closer in the inner courtyard, 
the roar of powerful thruster engines firing up. You should go now, Leto, warned Sobek. They will not wait for you, whether I am with you or not. Go now. We both have our separate destinies to follow, he added, wondering from where those last words had sprung unbidden. The boy hesitated, took one last despairing look at his master, and then vanished, running pal-mal along the high-vaulted corridor and towards the sound of the shuttle engines. He had been genuinely fond of the boy, Sobek thought, even if he had been clumsy and inattentive, with all the signs of becoming yet another dull-witted catechism mumbler, a breed of which the Ministorum had more than enough of already in Sobek's despairing opinion. But all the same, he had been fond of the boy, and thought it a pity that he had even less time to live than Sobek himself. The astropath again consulted the mystically charged cards of the Imperial Tarot, using them as a tool to unlock the prescient images that his psychic senses had plucked from the face of the warp. He drew two cards, laying them out in concordance, and seeing dual images forming simultaneously upon their faces. On one, the image of a fortress with its towers struck by a falling star tumbling from the heavens, the fallen citadel. On the other, the highly stylized representation of a space vessel, the occupants within it kneeling in prayer as they sought protection against the demons of the warp that hovered in the air above them, the starship, here appearing in its rare subform, the pilgrim vessel. Sobek focused his inner sight, again seeing the same warp dream images of the future. Fire death, tendrils spreading through the rusting passageways and compartments of a space vessel, reaching deep into the vessel's innards and closing around its beating plasma heart. The screaming faces of Leto, the Archdeacon, the Cardinal himself even, and those of many other adept brothers, all of them obliterated in an instant in a white-hot gush of blinding light. Sobek heard the roar of the shuttles taking off, all too aware that he had just seen the depths of all those now aboard. His own death was only days away, he knew, but theirs would come even sooner than that. How or why, he could not divine, but their deaths had already been ordained, and somehow he sensed it was not in his power to try to warn them or interfere in their destiny. As his own end approached, as the shadow of the planet killer loomed ever closer through the warp, he found that his powers of prophecy always at best vague and indistinct, were becoming more accurate and finely detailed. How this should be, he did not know, but he felt certain that it was the Emperor's will, that he was kept from the fate that would befall the rest of the Cathedral Brethren. He had a growing feeling that he had been spared or forewarned because the Emperor still required one more task of him. He turned back to the tarot cards again, looking to find in their shifting patterns and faces some clue of what that task might be. Oh, it's getting grim now, right? It's getting grim now. I remember this book so badly. It was like, it's a really harsh book, and um, Gordon Reen is such a good writer. I've really always enjoyed his stuff. He gets for I mean, he's like kind of one of the founders, really, of the 
of the ethos, of the feeling of the 40k universe. He was one of the first writers for it. This book is one of the first, sort of, I think it's within the first, like, 10 40k novels ever written. He's like, you know, he, he really placed his his image on it. And I really love these early books because they're really sort of foundational. And you can see that even though some things have changed, some of the ethos have changed, some of the messaging has changed, the fundamentals are still there. And these kind of novels and stuff like this are the foundations of it. They're really what sets 40k apart in that sort of early 2000 period from what it was previously to what it is now. And, uh, you know, this is this is the moment when it became truly grim, dark, really interesting, really, uh, you know, some depth to it. And, um, I mean, just the, the horror show of some of these things. And Gordon really is a really good writer because he, he presents the human. He's able to present glorious defiance, which I like to see. There's, there's some moments here of pure honour, you know, but also you get a sense of the the, the, the horror of everything um, as well. So, yeah, he, he's really capable of doing that. Is he the best writer in the world? Maybe not. But these novels that he's doing, and this novel in particular, and the, its its sequel, are just... 40k brilliance perfection and uh yeah it's a real pleasure to go through this again seriously anyway i hope you are enjoying this uh i'll be back again with more very very soon i told you i was going to keep up and get more regular with stuff i am so please do <laughs> like the videos share them to anyone you think might enjoy them that you know uh, do subscribe if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed and uh, yeah, and to everybody's name who's scrolling past here, you guys are the supporters. And if it wasn't for you guys, I'd have a really hard time doing this. And I thank you ever so much, uh, eternally. And if you would like to, to help me out and become a, a channel supporter, uh, you can do so by becoming a YouTube member or a Patreon or on Subscribestar. But following the links, if you look in the description, there's various links for options for you to uh, partake in if you'd like to help me. But if you can't do that, please do like the video, like I say, and uh, let me know in the comments what you think. Ah, I'll be back again with more soon. See you later. I'm running out of voices. I'm sort of like at the depth, the end of my, I've got more voices. Don't worry. There's always more voices. I'll watch an old movie and I'll find uh, an old voice to steal. <laughs> See you later. Ta-ra.